Passover, and tonight I want to talk about that in a little more detail. Um, kind of three parts to what I want to talk about is what Passover meant for them in Exodus 12, and then talking about the actual um, meal or the feast of Passover, the way it is celebrated uh, today and would have been celebrated at least somewhat during the time of Christ very similarly. And then thirdly, I want to talk about um, some of the Passover fulfillments that we see coming on later on in the time of Christ. So that's a little bit where we're going tonight. I want to start with reading Exodus 12. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to this because I'm going to read a number of verses here um, to sort of set the stage and go through the story. And then uh, we'll go on from there. So Exodus 12, reading verses 21 35. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to, according to your families, and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. When he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will not the Lord will pass over the door. And will not suffer the destroyer to come in into your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass, when ye become into the land which the Lord will give you, according as he has promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians, and delivered our houses. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Called for Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Rise up, get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So that's the Passover story. That is the event as we read it there in Exodus, of what happened um, in Egypt that night. So God had some God gave Moses some very specific instructions for the children of Israel to do in this plague. Now there's a few things that are different about this plague than any of the others. First thing that's different is it's the only one where human beings were directly targeted and killed. Now there was other plagues like the hail, for example, where people died, but they were warned to go into their houses and get out and don't be outside because this is what's going to happen. So it's the only one where human beings were directly targeted and killed. Secondly, God promises that the Hebrews will be free. He says this is going to be the last one. After this, after this, Pharaoh is going to drive you out of his land. The third thing that we see is that the Hebrews were not automatically exempt from this plague. So the first couple of plagues they experienced, they experienced the Nile River turning into blood, they experienced the frogs, they experienced the lice. Every time after that, plagues four through nine, they were protected. Goshen was separated from everything that happened. Now God says, I will protect you if you do what I tell you to do. And 
You can choose to ignore that if you wish. Only the proper sacrifice, not by each individual, not by the nation, but by each family, is going to keep them safe. And so you don't, it's not like the elders of Israel did something and everybody else was protected. Every household had to make a decision what they were going to do about this. Now, we have our own ideas of what this might signify, the whole idea of passing over, especially for those of us Christians now, because we look at it and say, okay, well, the blood of Jesus you know, protects us from sin and from the penalty of death and all of those things. Um, it makes a nice analogy for what Christ has done for us. And we really don't think too much about Passover. How many of you celebrated Passover this year? Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, actually, you did in communion. But uh, at the time that Passover was celebrated, really didn't give it a lot of thought. It's not on our radars. So what did it mean for the children of Israel, or for the Hebrews? Now, I want you to think about this. Last, was it last, the beginning of last year that, that Jeff killed the lamb? Something like that? For those of you that were here, Chris? <laughs> yeah, he goes out and, you ever see a sheep die? Take a knife and slit its throat. So you, they were commanded that they were to take this this lamb into their homes, for the sake of the lamb of the kid or of the goats. They're to take it and to kill it. They're to put the blood into a basin. And then God said, "I want you to take a bunch of kisuf, which is basically you're making a brush, and I want you to take some of that, dip it in the blood, and scrape it, maybe something like this, over the door of your house, on the top and on the sides." everybody can see what you've done. Now you could think, well, maybe that's a little weird, but that's it. But what did it mean for the Hebrews? You remember back when we talked about the plague of the frogs? And I told you that prior to that, stepping on a frog could be punishable by death. The Egyptians did not do a lot of animal sacrifices. We talked about sheep. Um, being the, the sacred animal of the Egyptian god Knum, and how that there was this massive street leading up to one of the temples that was lined with sheep heads, kind of superimposed over a little statue of Pharaoh. And you had like hundreds of these things lining both sides of the street the whole way down through about a mile to two mile section. Egypt does not look kindly on people killing sheep. And when the Hebrews were commanded to kill a sheep, and not only to kill it, but they are to do something with it in a way that makes it obvious to everyone else what you've just done. Now think about it in their terms. You have a decision to make. I can kill a sheep tonight, and tomorrow morning, if God doesn't show up like he said he would, the Egyptians are going to come and destroy us. Because there's no way that the Egyptian nation is going to stand for the Hebrews killing sheep. And Moses actually talks about this when he's talking with Pharaoh the one time. He says, no, we can't sacrifice here because what we sacrifice is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they're going to destroy us if we do it here. We have to go out in the wilderness to make our sacrifices. So for the Hebrews, they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. Either you obey God and run the risk of the Egyptians coming and taking care of you, or you disobey God and run the risk of what Moses has said is going to be the angel of death passing through the land. 
so it wasn't nothing for them. Because they did not know what was going to happen the next morning. They know what Moses has told them. It seems like they believe it. But you still don't know. And what happened, what happens here that's different is that for the first time, God is asking the Israelite nation to be something more than just an onlooker. It's like he's proven himself to them. I can't protect you. I can't take care of you. I can do all of these things. Are you willing to trust me or aren't you? And they're asked to become participants. And what God is setting them up for is a partnership where he is going to be their God, but he also has something for them to do. And this is really one of the first times that Israel has to make a decision. Are we going to stand with God or aren't we? Now, the other thing about this plague that separates it from all the rest of the plagues is that Israel was commanded to celebrate it every year. Now, we're going to go through the feast schedule just a little bit and from Leviticus 23. I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard a sermon about the feasts? One, two, three, a few. Was it boring? We're not taught these things in school, generally speaking. We're not taught them in church, for the most part. And I would go so far as to say that if we do not understand the feasts, we are greatly limited in our ability to understand much of the rest of Scripture. I'm not saying we don't understand it, but I'm saying we're missing something if we don't understand the feasts. And I want to go through briefly this calendar with you. So I told you last time that um, the Jews have a religious calendar and they have a civil calendar. Now we don't have a religious calendar in our Anabaptist circles, but there's a lot of people that do. The Muslims do. The Eastern Orthodox Church does. The Catholics do. Even the Amish do more than we do because they celebrate some of the Catholic holidays that we don't. We just have a religious cal or a civil calendar. Our year starts January 1st. Um, for the Hebrews, God said that I want this to be the first month of the year for you. What he meant is this is the first, first month in your religious calendar. So they have two calendars that they go through. One, they have a new year, a religious new year at the time of, of Passover. So in the spring, they have a new year, somewhere around the time of end of March, beginning of April. But then they also have a civil new year, and that happens in the fall at the Feast of Trumpets, which is the start of their, uh, it's right after harvest. And so they have harvest, and then, so the crops are growing throughout the summer, they have harvest, and then they have a new year celebration, and that's the beginning of their civil new year. But this is, the, this is the religious calendar that God sets out for them. And if you look at it in Leviticus 23, because this is all laid out by God, he says, these are my feasts that you are to celebrate to me, and he calls them holy convocations. Now the Hebrew term for a convocation is milkra. And a milkra is a dress rehearsal. That's literally what the Hebrew word means, dress rehearsals. When do you do dress rehearsals? A dress rehearsal is a practice for the real thing. So interesting. God said, I want you to do these things. These are my practices. You doing this is you practicing for the real thing. They were to start with uh, Passover. I don't have time to go into the feast. It would be really into, into everything that is laid out there in Leviticus 23. But... I want to just give you a brief look at this. So they start with Passover. It's on the 10th day of the, uh, 
It begins on the 10th day of the first month. So you have Passover. The next day after Passover begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's a seven-day feast in which they do not eat leaven. And in the middle of that Feast of Unleavened Bread, they have what is called the Feast of First Fruits, which happens a couple of days after Passover. So if you're lucky, so this year we are not lucky, because Christmas and New Year's fall on what day? Sunday. That's the worst day for Christmas to happen, because you don't get as many days off. Well, in the time of Christ, Passover happened on a Thursday. So Christ was crucified on a Thursday. The day following Passover, so Passover was a Sabbath day, the day following Passover was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That were also to take, They were also supposed to take Sabbath on that day. So they rested Thursday. They rested Friday. Saturday was the Sabbath day, so they rested on the Sabbath day. And Sunday was the day of the Feast of First Fruits. And so the entire time Jesus was in the tomb, the Jewish world, Sabbath, they rested. Every single one of those days was a holiday. Uh, anyway, so you have you have your uh, your feast season from here going. Uh, that's your spring feast. You have Passover followed by the feast of unleavened bread, followed by the feast of first fruits. Then you're going to count forty days, fifty days. I'm sorry, counting the omer, which is it, forty or fifty? I forget. Anyway, they were to count forty days from the day of the feast of first fruits, and then on the fortieth day, that was the feast of Pentecost. Now later on. When God talks about this in Leviticus 23, they recognize that at the Feast of Pentecost, they're celebrating God giving the law at Mount Sinai. So they celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and then that concludes, which, by the way, for us, that's around Ascension Day, um, which is always 40 days after Easter. That sound correct? Okay, yeah, I can't imagine where we would come up with that number. Um, so you have the Feast of Pentecost. Following Pentecost, is the summer harvest. So you have about a four-month period between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, as it's, it's known in Hebrew. You have about a four-month period where the fields, where the crops are ripening. Now, not all of them, but this is going to be like your corn and uh, your wheat, I believe. So the Feast of First Fruits, that's your grain and barley. That's the first fruits that they'd offer over that time. Your main crops coming in in the summertime are growing. Then you have harvest time. And at the beginning of the, I think it's the seventh month, they have a Feast of Trumpets. And these three feasts all happen within about a two-week period. So you have these happening together, then you have your Pentecost feast about a month and a half later, and then you have these three feasts happening together. The Feast of Trumpets, they were to blow the trumpets to usher in the new year. And then on the tenth day of the month, they would have the Day of Atonement. And that is the day that the priest would go into the tabernacle and put his, you know, bring blood before the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant, come back out, confess the sins of Israel over the scapegoat, and send the same scapegoat off into the wilderness. That was the Day of Atonement. And then uh, four days after that, on the 14th day of that month, they would have the Feast of Tabernacles, where they were to like make little booths outside their houses and live in them for a week. And that was their feast season. And every year, so the Jews... The Jewish men were commanded to celebrate the feast at the place of the tabernacle, which after they entered the land of Canaan was Shiloh, and eventually became Jerusalem when the temple was built there. You were supposed to be at the, fe at the, t at the temple for Passover, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement, I believe. Three times a year. You're a kid growing up, three times a year, your daddy is walking to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And you see that happening in Acts. 
when they were at the Feast of Pentecost, and it says that there were Jews there from every nation under heaven. Well, that's why they were there, because God had commanded that all the Jewish males are supposed to go back and uh, celebrate the feast at Jerusalem. Okay, so let's look more closely at the Passover. So you have the first month. On the tenth day of that month, they were to choose out a lamb, and they were to bring it into their houses and observe it for flaws until the fourteenth day, or until the essentially it's the thirteenth day. So you bring the lamb into your house. Your kids are playing with this creature and all of those things. And uh, you observe it for blemishes until the 14th day. On the evening of the 14th day, which is the night before Passover. So here's another thing that's different about the way they kept time back then. If you notice in the book of Genesis, God says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. Do you know how the Jews keep time? For us, our days start at midnight. For them, their days start when you can see three stars in the night sky. So as soon as it's dark tonight, it's Friday. So Friday evening is tonight, not tomorrow night. Tomorrow night will be Saturday evening. You see the difference? They start counting their day. They go from dark to dark, from, from sundown to sundown. That's when they count their days. So <coughs> Passover evening is the evening of the 14th day, but it's the, day, it's the night before Passover, if you follow me. So they celebrate the Passover feast uh, on the evening of the 14th day, which is the night before. So what they would do is they would remove all leaven from the house, and they were very careful about this, but what they would also do is leave little bits of it around on purpose, and then during the Passover meal, they get like a feather duster and a, whatever you call those things, and a dustpan, and the children would run around the house and look for the leaven and scrape it up. Like it's kind of this ceremonial, we found it all now, and we're getting it out of the house. Uh, and then they were to kill the lamb and eat it, and God gave them a few specific instructions about that. He said, I want you to roast the whole thing. Do not break any of its bones. And eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And in their feast, they were to remember what happened that night in Egypt and how God had delivered them. <clears throat> the next day, which is the day of Passover then, they began the feast of unleavened bread. There was, uh, they were not to eat leaven for seven more days. And then in there, there was a dedication that they did with the first fruit. But God specifically says that the first fruits of your children, the first fruits of your crops, and the first fruits of your animals all belong to him. And they, and they play that out. Christ became the first fruits of them that slept. Oh, by the way, Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the morning of first fruits. And I don't have time to get into all that, but just another way of, that he fulfilled all of that. So that's essentially the feast of Passover. That's how it's played out in the calendar. Now contrast this with Pharaoh, Ramses II, who was alive around this time, or, or maybe slightly prior to this. The Egyptians built the pyramids. If I'm not mistaken, they're the only wonder of the ancient world that is still in existence today. There's others that we know of, but they were destroyed or, or uh, crumbled in earthquakes and things like that. The pyramids are the only things that are stuck around. And then you have, imagine Moses, or imagine somebody going in before Ramses and saying, hey Ramses, 4,000 years from now, that little slave nation over there in Goshen is still going to be remembering their time in Egypt. They're still going to be a people. Yeah, the pyramids will still be here, but you will be forgotten. 
And here we are, 33 centuries later, and the Jews are still celebrating Passover. And the Egyptian civilization is gone. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says this, to become memorialized, you do not need monuments of stone. All you need to do is engrave your values onto the hearts of your children, and they onto their children, and they will carry them across time immortal. And that's what's happened. And they remember this night again and again throughout the generations. So Passover um, also evolved substantially until the time of Christ. And uh, next I want to look a little bit through what happened uh, or what, what Passover would have looked like during the time of Christ. So Passover is centered, the meal is centered around four cups. So I have here a cup of, well, you don't know what it is, do you? So I have here a cup, and during the course of the meal, they would drink four cups. Now the cup may also be filled a fifth time. They don't drink that fifth cup. But what they would do is they would, uh, during the various drinkings of each cup, they would remember the promises that God made to them in Egypt. So the first cup was the cup of God taking them out. The second cup is the cup of salvation, or God freeing them from the bond of Egypt. The third cup was the cup of redemption, also known as the cup of protection. God saying, I will redeem you, I will protect you. The fourth cup that they drink at the end of the meal was the cup of um, becoming God's people. Thank you for that note up there. They would drink the, the, the meal is centered around these four cups. So the Passover meal is called the Seder. That basically means it's the um, it's the the layout, the format, essentially is what the Passover Seder means. So this is loosely how it goes. Not, not, not all of them are the same. So you'd start out the meal, you'd come together, and the women would light the candles at your table, and you have the table laid out with the things that you need for Passover, including uh, the goblets, you might each have one, or you might have one that gets filled and gets passed around. So you start out the Passover Seder, Seder with the Kiddush, that's the blessing, that's the normal Judaic blessing that they say um, in synagogue and things like that, and other feasts as well. And they would take the first cup, fill it up, and drink. The first promise that God has made to them, that I will take you out. Following that, they take the carpus, which is the appetizer, they take a vegetable. I do not remember which vegetable we usually use. I've done Passover meals a few times. Um, you dip it in salt water and you eat it. And that is to symbolize the tears of the Hebrews in hard bondage under Pharaoh. Following that, you have the yichatz, which is the unleavened bread. What they do is they take, which I don't know if you've ever seen unleavened bread. Think of a big saltine cracker. That's essentially what it looks like. And what they would do is they would take three pieces, three large squares of unleavened bread, and they would hide it in a cloth. But they would take the middle piece and break it. And then they would put the, tuck that broken piece in between the two other pieces and hide it in a cloth, and it sits there on the table in front of them for a while. Following that, they have the Haggadah, which is the recital of the Exodus story. And they're doing this every year, by the way. And Passover is one of the reasons that the Jews are so good at passing on their religion. Because you have these times throughout the year where you come together and you remember. So they, they tell the, uh, the Exodus story, and then they take the second cup. They fill the cup again and drink the cup of salvation. 
Following that, so that's kind of like all the introduction things to the meal. Following that, they have the halakhmania, uh, which is the invitation to the rest of the Seder. And um, then they have their main Passover meal after that. Uh, as part of the um, invitation to the meal, they eat unleavened bread. So they pull out some of that masa and eat it. And that the children ask four ceremonial questions, among which, like, why are we, why are we doing this tonight? And they ask the same questions every year. But again, it's this interaction between the old and the young that's happening. Why are we doing this tonight? Why are we eating unleavened bread? What is going on? And it's also during this time that they name the ten plagues and they mourn the suffering of the Egyptians. Following that, so you have the meal, you have the Passover meal, and then they get up after the Passover meal and uh, give a blessing. They take unleavened bread and bitter herbs, which, by the way, bitter herbs is parsley or horseradish. And they don't taste good if you've ever taken them together. <clears throat> Which horseradish doesn't taste good anytime, really. Following that, they get up, or the, the leader of the of the Seder would get up and give the Bariuk, Bariak, sorry, which is the grace after meals. By the way, uh, if you've ever been in Amish mealtime, they had prayer before and after. I can't imagine where they came up with that either. Um, so you get up, you have the grace after meals. You ceremonially wash your hands. You have a basin there on the table. You wash your hands, and then you take the third cup, the cup of protection and redemption, and you drink that one. After that, you sing the Hillel, which is a selection of psalms from the scriptures. They sing together for a time, and then they take the fourth cup, <clears throat> fill it up, and they drink the cup of becoming God's people. And then the Passover meal at that time, or the Passover Seder at that time, is pretty much done, with the exception of one thing. Not, not all of them do this, but there is a fifth cup that's involved in the Passover Seder. It's called the cup of Elijah. And they take this cup from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This is from the complete Jewish Bible. Look, I will send Eliyahu the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. You might recognize it more in the King, King James. Behold, I am sending before you Elijah. I will send to you the prophet Elijah before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. What Elijah symbolizes for them is God making things right. There's cups mentioned throughout scripture. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 25, God told him, uh, I want you to take this cup. <coughs> Excuse me. God told him, I want you to take this cup and go give it to the nations and make them drink. Now, what kind of cup is God talking about? Well, what was in that cup, which I don't think it was a, a literal cup. But God pronounces judgments against the nations, Edom, Moab, Tyre, Sidon, all of these places that were living in wickedness during the time of Jeremiah. And he says, I want you to go to those nations and tell them, this is what God is going to do to you to judge you. <coughs> now, God uses the metaphor of a cup. I want you to take this cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of vengeance, and I want you to make the nations drink of it. And they're going to say, we don't want to drink of that cup. They're going to say, no, we don't want it. And you are to tell them, no, you are going to drink of the cup. It's found in Jeremiah 25. And Jeremiah says, and so I went to all of the nations and I did this. That's the cup of Elijah. What they would do is, because the Passover is looking back. You're remembering what happened in Egypt. But it's also looking forward. And they actually say as part of the Passover, currently, they say next year in Jerusalem. And what the hope is, is that next year we would be blessed enough that we could celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. 
part of that, in order to celebrate, well, the Jews did not have control of Jerusalem for a long time. But part of what they're looking forward to is a time when God is going to come and make everything right. There's this, there is a feast that's talked about in Isaiah called the Feast of the Messiah. And what God says to Isaiah, or prophesies through Isaiah, is that there will come a time when all the nations, when the nations of the earth will come to the Feast of the Messiah. They will sit down with him. And they have this hope that, obviously it's, they're, they're symbolizing it, but they fill a cup for Elijah. Because when Elijah comes, he will make everything right. And so the cup is filled, and they go to the door, and they open the door into the night, and they invite Elijah to come join their Passover meal. Now maybe you think that's creepy. But for them, what it's symbolizing is they're looking forward to a time when God will come back and make things right. And part of making things right is bringing justice. You don't drink this cup. Why not? You're not they're not filling the cup for Elijah to drink. They're filling the cup for Elijah to take and give it to the people who deserve it. Does that make sense? It's called the cup of wrath. So what's in this cup is justice. What's in that cup is judgment. And then they take the cup and they pour it out onto the ground. And they go back inside, and the Passover Seder is done. Now that's, there, there's variations and more details than what I've given you tonight, but that's the basic layout of it. The entire feast is celebrated around the drinking, around the filling of five cups. I should say it that way. So why does this matter? How many of you have ever done a Passover? Similar to the one I described. A few of you did have. Was it meaningful? God said that his feasts, this is Leviticus 23 again, God said that his feasts were dress rehearsals for what was to come. Now, what were they practicing for? Now, there's no way that I can, in one evening, tell you all of the ways that this was fulfilled, but I want to walk you through some of what happened during the time of Christ. Triumphal entry. Jesus entered Jerusalem through the sheep gate on the tenth day of the first day of the month. And he goes into Jerusalem, and he spends the next three days in the synagogue, sorry, in the temple, arguing with the chief priests and rabbis. And you can read about some of that dialogue, say arguing, debating, whatever you want to call it. You can read about some of those conversations, Matthew 24, 23, 27, 28, some of the, or not 20, sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but there's a number of conversations that are recorded there. He was observed, he was questioned, he was examined during his time in the temple. And then, Pilate, he stands before Pilate, and what does Pilate say? He says, I find no fault in him. So Christ enters Jerusalem through the Sheep Gate on the day when all of the nation of Israel was choosing their lambs for the Passover sacrifice that year. And then, the night before Passover, Jesus finds himself in an upper room. And in John 13, we can read that and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, he it was that should betray him. And it says, and Jesus, and supper being ended, 
Jesus rises from supper and takes a towel. So what, what's supposed to happen next? They've had the Passover meal. They've drunk the first two cups. The meal's over. Now it's time for Jesus to stand up and wash his hands. That's ceremonially what's supposed to happen next. But he doesn't wash his hands. He takes a towel, gets a bowl, and kneels down and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And following that, let's read Luke 22. <clears throat> following that, Jesus takes the cup. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and said unto them, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. So Jesus stands up after the meal, takes the third cup, the cup of redemption, also the cup of protection. And he offers it to all of his disciples. Take it. This is my body. Which is this is my blood, which is shed for you. He even offers it to Judas. Why does Jesus say, I'm not going to drink of the cup? Did you ever look through those passages and wonder why? Can you imagine looking into the wine that night and Jesus saying, I can't take this, but this is my blood knowing that his blood was going to replace this. And then taking that broken centerpiece of matzah out and breaking it some more and handing it to his disciples and saying, this is my body. Knowing that his body tomorrow is going to be broken. And he says, I'm not going to drink the cup. Why not? What happens if Jesus takes God's protection onto himself? that night. We don't get the crucifixion. We don't get Gethsemane because he is under God's protection. Jesus says, I'm not going to take it tonight. I can't. There will come a day and he says, I will drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's talking about the feast of the Messiah that Isaiah prophesies, saying that there will come a day that we will sit down and do this, but it's not tonight. And then he says, from now on, when you do this, and he wasn't talking about just the third cup, he was talking about the Passover celebration, saying, from now on, when you do this, you're not going to look back to Egypt anymore. I want you to look back to this night and remember what I did for you. Now, we have adapted the third cup and the bread into our communion service, and I think that's totally fine. I don't, I'm not saying we should do Passover, but that is... We are celebrating a part of the Passover service when we do that. What happens next? I believe it's John that records it. It says, after, that they, after they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So there you get the final part of the Passover. Jesus washes their feet. He offers them the cup, the bread. Judas goes out. They sing together, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. One of the Gospels specifically records that when they went to the Mount of Olives, they crossed over the Kidron Brook. Josephus, the historian, records that around the time of Christ at Passover, 
there were 235,000 sheep that were killed on the Temple Mount for Passover celebration. Because <coughs> what would happen is they would come to Jerusalem with their sheep, take them to the temple, the priest would kill it, and then you would take that sheep home and roast it and eat it and all of those things. Well, the Temple Mount is just that. It's on top of a mountain, and all that blood has to go somewhere. What they would do is they would wash that blood down the Kidron Valley. And Jesus refuses the cup of protection. He refuses the cup of salvation, or of the of uh, redemption. And he goes to Gethsemane, and he walks through a bloody river, knowing that tomorrow his blood is going to take the place of all of those lambs. And he comes into the garden of Gethsemane. There's Gethsemane means a wine press. And Jesus begins to feel weight. <clears throat> says he began to feel very heavy. And he says something else that makes no sense unless you understand Passover. He says, let this cup pass from me. What cup? You see, when you don't take the cup of protection, you get Elijah's cup. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. People that eat and drink unworthily drink damnation to themselves. That's what's happening. And Jesus goes into Gethsemane outside of the protection of God for sin. And he looks into the cup and he realizes what's there. Now what what did that feel like? <clears throat> Can you imagine what it would be like to feel to be perfect? For life to be absolutely 100% perfect. It's hard to imagine. Now imagine someone that has never felt the weight of sin. Think about the worst, most shameful thing you've ever done in your life. And now imagine feeling that if you've never felt sin before. And all of that weight is now on Christ. I personally think that the worst agony of the crucifixion did not happen on the cross. I think it happened in the garden. And Jesus begins to cry out for relief from the cup of justice and judgment that he was feeling. Because he was experiencing God's wrath. And he had never, ever, ever, ever for a single moment felt separation from God before. And then the next morning, <clears throat> so that night, you know the story. Jesus, Jesus releases himself, I guess we could say, to the will of God. He says, whatever you will. I don't want it, but whatever you will. And the next morning, Jesus is hung on a cross. And there is good indication that the place where Jesus was crucified was just outside the Temple Mount. And they actually found the stone in the corner of the wall where the priest would stand up, would, would kind of like step up onto the corner of the wall and blow the trumpet, announcing the times of sacrifice. And Jesus is hung on the cross in the morning about 9 o'clock. And he hangs there for six hours. And during that time, 
God turns his face away. Do you know that there's never been a time that God has turned his face away from you? God turns his face away from his son. And Jesus hangs there on the cross, broken between two thieves. And it says at 3 o'clock, he cried out with a loud voice at the ninth hour, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He cries out with a loud voice and gives up the ghost. Why is the time important? It's because Jesus was hanging there on the cross, waiting to hear the sound of the shofar being blown to announce the afternoon Passover sacrifice. And at the moment they killed that lamb in the temple, Jesus died and said it's finished. What was finished? What's finished is that the fifth cup of wrath Somebody else drank that. That means that you and I can drink the cup of protection and redemption without fear of the fifth one because somebody else did. God doesn't just forgive sin. It, doesn't, it isn't like God sets justice aside so that you can be forgiven. I don't know what justice happened. It just didn't happen to you. And Jesus saw the suffering of the world. Another thing that I find so interesting. And he didn't fix it. He gave himself and took upon himself the suffering so that you and I wouldn't have to experience it. That's the invitation that he gives us. you have a hard time believing that or not that another man's sacrifice could actually be enough for your soul but it's true that most shameful thing that you've ever done the greatest sin you've ever committed your savior felt the weight of that he was able to take it so that you don't have to. That is why when we come to communion, we can drink the cup and take salvation onto ourselves. Yeah, it's not fair. It's not just. But it doesn't have to be. And Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross and despised the shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? The joy was the ability to bring you back reconcile you with him. That is the story of Passover. Christ would go on to rise from the dead on the morning of first fruits several days later. And the interesting thing about the Feast of First Fruits is what you're doing is you're giving the, the first with the expectation that because God provided a little bit, he's going to provide a lot more. Have you ever read that little story in, I forget at the end of which gospel it is, where it talks about all these people that rose up from the dead? What is going on? What's happening is, this is the feast of first fruits. 
And, and it says, it didn't, they just didn't, didn't just raise from the dead, it says that they came into Jerusalem and were received by many people. Like, first the sky grows black on Passover, and then dead people start coming to life again. It's really weird. No, it's not weird, actually. What Jesus is saying is, this is the Feast of first fruits. This is just a sample of what's going to happen later. And because I can raise these people from the dead, I can also do it later, at the end, with a whole lot more people. So Jesus raises from the dead on Passover, uh, on, uh, on the Feast of first fruits. Forty days later, they are in... They are uh, on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus goes up into heaven. And a few days after that, they are in the temple, and the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost, the very day that they celebrate God coming down on Mount Sinai and giving his word to the people. God comes down again, but then his spirit comes out. And that's the last feast that has been, that has been fulfilled. Jesus said in John 4, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. What happens after Pentecost in the Jewish calendar? It's harvest time. Following that is a feast where they blow the trumpets. And Paul says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the shofar, the sound of the shofar. That's what's next on the calendar. It hasn't happened yet. But, do you see what I'm saying? If we don't understand God's calendar, we don't see what's coming. But we don't just not see what's coming, we also won't understand what has already happened. And what I've talked to you about tonight is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how the Jews, especially Messianic Jews, who not only have the history of the teaching of the teachings of all of this stuff, but they actually believe in Messiah yet as well. They understand this so much more richly than we do. And I hope that tonight I'm able to at least whet your appetite to know that there's a lot more here that we can understand and find meaning in. It's exciting. Who would have known that a chapter in Leviticus could tell us so much or a chapter in Exodus? I'm not sure how to wrap this up other than to say that I think we have a hard time understanding God's love and what he did for us. But that doesn't lessen the value of it. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not true. I think I'll stop there. You are dismissed.